Hi, I'm Leah Carey, and this is Good Girls Talk About Sex. This is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. Before we get started, I want to tell you this. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with the things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. In today's episode, we'll meet Megan, a 36-year-old cisgendered woman who describes herself as Hispanic, straight, single, and monogamous. Megan was immediately on board when she heard about this podcast and has been an ardent supporter since I began working on it. In fact, we did three interviews together as I learned what this podcast wanted to be and how to use my equipment. That's a true friend. I am so pleased to introduce Megan. Megan, I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you because I know that you are also interested in sort of pushing the bounds of of what is uh, sort of quote unquote normal conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think even more so now, I think that this is very, really important conversation to have. All right. So the first question that I ask everyone I speak with is, what is your first memory of sexual desire? I remember in kindergarten liking this guy named Cooper. And one day in class, we were standing in line and he turned around and I remember this like it was yesterday. We both stuck our tongues out and touched our tongues together. And that was in kindergarten. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I remember in middle school inviting friends over and we used to use my mom's vibrator um, and pass it around and acknowledge how good it felt um, on our cl- clitorises, which I, we didn't even know what that word was at that point. But How old were you when you were doing that? Uh, that was probably, well, sixth, sixth or seventh grade. And were you doing that with your clothes on or would you take your clothes off? I think we were in our pajamas. So when you were passing the vibrator around with your girlfriends, was there a sense that this was a sexual thing? Where was the dividing line between physical enjoyment and sexual enjoyment? All we knew was that it felt really good, but none of us thought that it was sexual necessarily. We just knew that it felt really good when we put it in that area. And it was really innocent. I mean, we weren't, we weren't ashamed of it. My best friend growing up, we used to play doctor a lot. We would um, take photos of each other. I mean, I think when we were taking photos of each other naked, that was a bit more sexual. Like we wanted to look sexy. But when we were playing doctor, we were just kind of exploring our bodies to see how they compared to each other's kind of. Was this another female friend? Yeah. So when you think back on those experiences now, because everything you're talking about is like 12, 13 and younger, 
Was this childlike exploration or was there actual sexual energy involved? It's an interesting question because as I got older, people told me that it was sexual energy. And they told me I, you know, I had a lot of sexual energy that I was very everything from sexy to you know, that played out in different ways, including me having a lot of partners. But at the time, I really think it was just innocent energy. I don't, I don't, because I didn't think of it like that at the time, maybe, maybe an adult who would have seen that would have, what is a different, like, when do you define it as sexual? Is it when it becomes like, you need to get something out of it? Like what, I guess, what's the difference? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, well, I think it's a really interesting question to explore, and, and I don't have an answer either, but kids do explore. There is a lot of sexual exploration that happens in childhood, and I think it freaks a lot of parents and adults out because we see it through the filter of having become sexual beings, but maybe when you're still a child, that's not actually going on. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until the shame came became involved that I started thinking of it as sexual. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Until I started thinking that that was wrong in some way. So what's your first memory of sexual shame? My first kiss, my first real kiss. Um, I felt so ashamed. It was, it was a summer before my seventh grade year. Um, I still was probably pre-pubescent. I remember I had a little pot belly and I was wearing a bandana. I wore really baggy clothes and I had become best friends with this boy in California. And I remember he, we were sitting in the movie room and it was dark and he leaned over and he kissed me and it was my first kiss and I didn't want it. I was shocked. Hmm. I thought it was completely disgusting. And I basically ran away. And then I, he tried to see me the next day. He brought me like a teddy bear and I refused to like see him the rest of the summer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I didn't have an, I didn't, and I swore off boys that day. I was like, I'm never going to kiss any, a boy ever again. And then it wasn't until a tire year later that I had my second kiss. And that time I loved it and I wanted more and I wanted to find out like where I could get more of it. Do you think the difference was in your readiness to have the experience or was the difference in how much you liked the boy and wanting to have that experience with him? I would say the readiness. Mm. It was definitely the readiness Um, because even though in kindergarten I had, you know, I maybe because I was w- more aware at that age what sexual s- sex was and kissing was rather than being in kindergarten touching tongues with a boy in line, you know, where I had no clue whatsoever <laughs> what what sex was or or what that implicated and and I think I just was not ready um and I still I viewed that boy at that for my first kiss as just a friend and just as I didn't see him as a sexual creature and I wasn't ready. Yeah, I wasn't ready for that. Mm-hmm. And by the next summer, you were ready to start exploring that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because every kind of step along the way, when I was ready for something, I wanted it then and there. 
<laughs> kind of like me in life, but <laughs> um, that happened when I had lost my virginity as well. Like I, I literally climbed through a guy's window uh, in the middle of the night and jumped on top of him. Oh my goodness. Tell us, tell us that story. (laughs) When I lost my virginity, I was 17 and there was this guy down the street uh, who was in a fraternity and I had lied to him about my age. He like collared at me one day when I was walking home from school, from the school bus. And he asked me what year I was. And I, I didn't think this was a lie, but I told him I was senior not thinking that like in his mind that meant senior in college and <laughs> and you know in my mind I was I just didn't think but I was a senior in high school and I started seeing him here and there and then one night um I got really drunk with my friends at my house I threw up in my backyard I passed out in my bed and then I woke up at three in the morning. I, I think I had like a page from him because we didn't have cell phones back then. We had beepers. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like three, three, three thirty in the morning. And I walked down the street. It was like two blocks or three or four blocks away. And I basically climbed up in, into, um, it was like right off of the balcony or the um, porch, the front porch. And I opened his window. He was like dead asleep. And I basically jumped on top of him and pulled on his pants. And I mean, I obviously got consent first, um, kind of. I mean, I don't think I actually asked him, like, do you want this? But uh, he he woke up and he was surprised, but he was like, okay, you want to do this? I was, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes. And he was not very big, so it was kind of like a good way to start, I guess. And uh, he kept asking if it hurt me. And I didn't know what he meant, and because it didn't hurt at all. <laughs> uh-huh. But uh, but yeah, and uh, and that's how I lost my journey. Did you have pleasure that first time? Oh God! I mean, I think at first of all I was still drunk. Second of all, um, I don't remember even really being able to feel him, and I think I was just acting out um, how I'd seen it in the movies. I remember it being exciting. But having pleasure, I'm not really sure. Did you continue having sex with him? Yeah, we continued for probably a year or so. Um, And did it get better over time? Did you start having pleasure? Honestly, I think at that age, I just cared so much what the guy felt that it wasn't even in my mind as to what I felt. Yeah. Beyond just knowing I wanted that high of being wanted and having somebody inside me. So the high was about his desire for you. Was it about making him feel pleasure? Yeah. But it was not about you feeling pleasure. No. I mean, that didn't even happen until I was mid to late twenties, probably. So how did that, what do you think the change was that allowed you to start focusing on your own pleasure? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I finally had my first orgasm alone. I had a, you know, I got a, I got a dildo, um, in my early twenties, but I think I didn't have my first orgasm until probably my mid twenties. So I finally felt what that felt like. Mm-hmm. I knew what it felt like to feel good, but I didn't know what an actual orgasm felt like. 
And then having a couple of partners who made that a priority. Um, and starting to heal the trauma from my childhood and from my basically be, just being able to heal myself. Sounds like what you're talking about is that there was some non-consensual experiences. Right, right. So I think it was a combination. I had not only non-consensual experiences, I was never raped. Uh, I don't think, although I was certainly drunk enough. Looking back, it's interesting because there were so many times, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times that I was drunk and I didn't want it or I had said no, but then it was so much easier to say, to go along with it than to keep saying no. And then not only that, but when I was 15, I had a guy who I really, really liked. I thought I was in love with, I mean, he was 26 and I was obsessed with him. My parents, they really trusted him. They trusted him so much that they allowed him to take me out. And then on the way home, he basically pushed my head down and made me give him a blowjob. And that was my first blowjob I had ever given. And and I thought, and this, it wasn't until many years later in therapy uh, that I realized, first of all, that it wasn't consensual. Second of all, that it was child molestation. And third of all, I was so innocent. Like at that point, I, I thought that that meant that we were boyfriend and girlfriend. So when he came in my mouth and then I looked up at him and he said, and then he dropped me off in front of my parents' house and said that he could never see me again and that I could never tell anybody about this. Mm. I was devastated. And that was probably the moment where I lost some of my innocence and I, thought I was just there to please men really, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Thank you. Yeah. And I think it's really important to just pause here for a moment. When we have some type of non-consensual experience where another person invades our body, no matter what orifice, no matter what you know, they are using to, whether it's their penis, their fingers, or a toy or whatever, that is non-consensual. It is not okay. And it is rape. No. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if I were listening to this and I was hearing a woman say this, I would be angry at her for not owning that. And or not. Oh, I shouldn't say owning that. Cause that sounds like it's all, it's putting everything on on her but 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 you're right like it it's it was wrong of him to do that he he certainly raped my childhood my innocence mm-hmm. and you know he he was yeah yeah it was yeah. it was it was wrong and uh it scarred me i didn't tell anybody for another 6 years or so probably Wow, which is, you know, the fact that he would say to you, you can't talk about this with anybody, and you would then go on to believe that that is another marker of just how not okay, no matter what words you put on it, how not okay that interaction was. And, and please forgive me for hijacking this for a moment. But I just I think it's so important 
Right now, we are in the midst of a cultural moment where there's a lot of questions around what consent is. And um, I think it's really important to sort of pull that apart and understand that just because you didn't say no in that moment doesn't mean that you gave consent. That was coercion. When somebody uses their power over you to get you to do something that you don't know if you want to do or not, that is coercion. And I also heard you say that you, there were times when guys sort of just kept going and you finally decided it's easier to give in than to keep saying, no, that is coercion. It may not fit the actual definition of rape, but that does not mean that it is consensual behavior. You know, if there are any young girls listening, I think I also want to say that at that time, I thought I felt somewhat culpable for it because I looked older. I mean, I was 15, but I could easily pass. I mean, I got into bars quite often and I always, I always joke that I looked by the time I was 14, I looked 25 and I was 25 until I was turned 30 basically. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, but it's true. And, you know, as a, a pretty young girl, Men would often think that I was much older and then therefore I felt responsible because I did look older and therefore I, and so then I would act older and then sometimes I would lie about my age and, and I wanted desperately to be older and I wanted desperately to be treated like an adult. So in some ways I blamed myself for that and thought that that came with the territory of what I wanted and this is what I was asking for. And and I just want to say, yeah, if there are any young girls listening, that that's absolutely not true. And, you know, no matter what, just because if you're pretty or thin or look older or, you know, however you look, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's never okay um, for a guy to to do that to you. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Okay, let's just both take a deep breath. (laughs) Yeah, God. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm. Uh, All right, I'm going to change the subject a bit. Okay. The title of the podcast is Good Girls Talk About Sex. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear you talk about what did the words good girl mean to you as a child? And what do they mean to you now? (laughs) <laughs> well, I just want to say that the when you when you said that just now, I immediately thought, well, I should not be on this podcast <laughs> talking to you because <laughs> I was not a good girl, um, and and that's basically you know how I thought as a little kid that I was not a good girl, and that I also didn't know if I wanted to be a good girl. I prided myself on being a bit rebellious, standing up for what I believed in, being a little bit of a badass and you know, and and that kind of the sexual part of it came with the territory. So there was also darker parts of that where my initials are Mal, so M A L, and I mean I can't even tell you how many pages in my journal just are really big letters like M a L equals bad. <laughs> Cause Mal is bad in Spanish. It's bad in French. And I, yeah, I just thought I was such a bad girl. 
And so a good girl to me was boring, was somebody who played by the rules, somebody who I didn't necessarily want to be aligned with. Mm. And now, good girl, I would say, it just feels patronizing. Hmm. You know, it just feels like, oh, that's a good girl. Like something you would say to your dog or um, something that we're expected to be. And it's kind of bullshit. Good girls never got anywhere. (laughs) 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 That's kind of how I view it now. Um, And, but, you know, I, but it's so, and I know why you, because we've talked about this before, I know why you've, you chose that because you very heavily identify with good girl and everything I'm saying is not to put you down or anybody who identifies as a good girl down in any way. Um, that's, that's, I'm just being completely frank about that, but it's, I know also why you chose that because you as the good girl didn't talk about sex growing up, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a very shameful subject. It it was a very confusing subject that I felt ashamed to talk about, um, and then felt ashamed to express as I became older. And sexuality was an appropriate outlet. Um, I never felt that it was available to me, and so all of that idea of being a good girl was very repressive. But now. I'm sort of stepping into that, uh, into a new belief that quote unquote good girl is more about being a woman of integrity, being a woman of my word, and um, really doing what I can to bring light to the world and, and do as much as I can to make it a little less fucked up. (laughs) That's the kind of good girl that I want to be. For me, it no longer has any of those connotations of repression or trying to make other people feel good. I think for me, I no longer want to identify with good or bad. And I'm totally stealing this from Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, Mm. But I want to be free. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's that has a lot of themes in a lot of the work, my work, a lot of my writing. Uh, it's it's it has a theme in my life, right? You know, leaving the corporate world, not having a boss anymore, not giving my power away, whether it be my boss, whether it be my lover, whether it be um, my best friend, you know. And and so that that's something that I've just I've done time and time again in my life is giving my power away. Hmm sexually, um, creatively, you know, giving other people too much power, basically. And, yeah. and, and that's what I'm basically done with doing. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post. And if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, 
don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex, I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you. Whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener, I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. My boss, who I just recently, um, that was a whole nother lesson in and of itself, but but um, slowly but surely, I've like been peeling away. And when you say you've had to deal with a boss, I assume that was not a physical sexual relationship. No, no, just a boss that I believe hires women that he sees this kind of flaw in who are strong women, but that he can gaslight and manipulate. Uh, Cause I would look around the table and it was, it, we were all like the same type and mm. I talked to several women who had left the company since then and one of which who had actually slept with him. Um, and, you know, we each have kind of something in our backgrounds which allow us somehow to fall prey to these men hmm. who seek, seek us out. And I was probably the one who spoke the most, spoke up to him the most. Um and but now I'm free and uh, but yeah it was just a pet constant power struggle. Yeah, that's interesting. You're describing women who are strong, and yet um, he's preying on them. And I think usually we think of women who are preyed on as having a, a different uh, constitutional or emotional makeup. Right, like they're painted as they're painted in like movies and things as, as like weak or people who are easily trodden over, but yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean, I think, I think, you know, sometimes some people that we would view as the strongest people um, from the outside are the ones who are, who have suffered or are suffering potentially from some type of abuse in a relationship. And, you know, there's nothing, Sometimes <laughs> uh, the the strongest and the most empathic people are the ones who the narcissists prey on the most because it's the ones that 
if they break, it's almost like the biggest challenge in some ways, right? Like if they break them down, then it's almost like the, the ones that appear weak are too easy. If that makes sense. It's really interesting that you say that because it makes me think about the relationship between my mom and my dad. My dad was a narcissist and a gaslighter. And I would hear him talk about how he was attracted to my mom because she was so strong. But I looked at my mom and she did not present that way at all. She presented as really beaten down. Um, she was an amazing mother. But in terms of uh, sort of that relationship, she never spoke up to him. She she really was very sort of acquiescent to him. Um, but recently, I was going through her belongings after her death, and I found this cache of pictures I had never seen. And I discovered these pictures from a time when she did show up as that really strong person, the the bright red dress and like really showing up as fully like herself and, and really this bright, beautiful woman who I had never seen. And, and it was so interesting to see that because that was a woman who I never got to know and who apparently that was what really attracted my father to her, but he then beat that out of her. That's so interesting. I mean, I, you know, the guys I fought who have fallen in love with me and I've also fallen in love with, but they, yeah, they love that. They love my personality. And when they first meet me, how big I seem, uh, they say that they love it. But then as we get into the relationships, little by little, that's what they start pulling apart. Mm. And I mean, my exes would sometimes take, you know, if we were at a dinner party and I said the wrong thing, or if I laughed too loudly, they would pull me to the side and say, I was embarrassing them. Or, you know, so it's like all the things that they fall in love with, then they, then they get, they get intimidated by, and they think that that's, and, and, and they think that they can't shine if you're also shining, which obviously is a complete fallacy. Uh Uh, And, and so it's up to the woman then, you know, and of course this goes, I'm sure there's another type of relationship with potentially this, where the, the, the female would also do that to the male, as they say, demasculating the male, if, uh, although I hate that term. In my experience, every single guy I've dated, and that's why probably I haven't had a boyfriend in three years because I'm being very, very specific, like clear. And it's, I've been tested along the way as well. Like those guys are still attracted to me, but I'm able to spot them out. Like in so much faster now, it's, it's like they do one little thing and I'm like, nope. Like I can tell, you know, like one guy said, he he just, he just casually said to me on a second date, oh, why do you, why do you, um, why do you paint your nails? You have such beautiful hands. They would look so nice without nail polish. Oh. And I was like, nobody. (laughs) (laughs) It starts there. Like it's so subtle. And it was so like, you know, he was complimenting my hands. He was saying how beautiful my hands were, but it was such a, like a a subtly controlling thing. Yes. What has your life been like for these last few years without a relationship? Um, I say that I've become a a born again virgin, but (laughs) um, (laughs) not entirely. But there was a really long time, probably a good year and a half after we broke up, that I really just 
needed to heal and I needed to be away from men probably for the first time in my life and meant no sex, you know, no real dates and just be with myself. So I did that for the first year and a half. And I, I, I don't want to say I didn't have sex at all because there were a couple of people that I ended up sleeping with or I had, um, you know, affairs with or whatever, but, um, but then it's been very slow and I've really started the past eight months or so feeling really confident again and, and wanting to, to date and be in a relationship and feeling really excited about it again. Um, but yeah, it, it's been a really conscious, hard thing. Like I literally will download a dating app, be on it for a weekend and then like delete it again mm. <laughs> <laughs> on the Monday. Um, and then I talk to my coach and she's like, you don't need to date right now. It's okay. Like don't date. And, but now it, it really is. I, I'm ready. And I actually, I dated, I started dating this guy a couple of weeks ago and I really, really started liking him. And, um, we were really, I felt like this was, this was really going somewhere. And he said to me, he didn't want to sleep with me until I was ready. And it's probably the first guy who's ever said that to me. Wow. And I said to him, God, I don't even know what it feels like to be ready. And, and I said, you might have to wait a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, even more reason, you know, to make sure that you're ready. Cause I want to make sure that you know that I love you and that, you know, and that you feel completely secure in this. And it really got me thinking about God, like, I've, I've just never even considered that. Like it just, I've had sex with guys. I mean, honestly, it goes back to the kind of the bad girl thing because I thought I almost felt embarrassed to not to say no or to say like, can we wait? Because I didn't want to seem vulnerable. Mm. Or I didn't want to seem weak in some way, in some ways that made me feel like I was weak. I remember I was um, during my, my period of intense exploration, um, I was fooling around with this guy and I had been very open with him that this was like, I was really sort of taking baby steps. I was really relearning myself and relearning my sexuality. And um, he was totally on board for that. This was not a romantic thing. It was purely a physical fooling around sort of relearning myself and I said to him at one point, um, is it okay if I don't, and I was like scared to even say the words, is it okay if I don't touch your penis until I'm ready? And he's like, yeah, of course, that's what consent means. That's, that's what that is. And it blew my friggin' mind. <laughs> like, wait a minute, I don't have to do it until I'm ready. And then I started the the exact same thing that I hear you questioning. Like, what does that even mean? How do I know if I'm ready? Because in the past, I've always just done it because I thought I was supposed to want to. I was supposed to give the other person pleasure. My readiness was never a factor. So how do I know what ready feels like? And I decided that what it felt like was waiting until I had the feeling of, oh my God, I can't wait until I touch it. Like, oh my God, I just want it right now. 
and that I was going to wait until I had that feeling. God, it's so basic. (laughs) (laughs) And yet it's not because we don't learn it. I know. It's insane. Like I'm 36 years old and the first man to ever tell me it was okay to to wait until I was ready is at 36. (laughs) And I'm right. And I've slept with over like 100 people. (laughs) It's astonishing that we don't learn that basic bodily autonomy. I want to ask you one more big question before we begin to wrap up, which is, what did you learn about, quote unquote, appropriate sexuality as a child? And this could come from any number of places, whether it was your childhood home and your parents, from school, from religion. What did you learn about appropriate sexuality as a child? That's a really good question. I grew up in a household that was pretty complicated. I had very mixed signals throughout my childhood. Um, My mother divorced my father when I was six months old because he had been having an affair with her best friend. Then she married this man who became my stepfather when I was five years old, and she was not sexually attracted to him. And I didn't know this at the time, but you could tell that she had no interest in him. And then um, when I was 12 years old, she married another man who she was very vocal about the sex. But I don't know what that taught me about what was appropriate. My mother often said, if you've got it, flaunt it. So in terms of what we could wear, you know, she would say, on the one hand, if you've got it, flaunt it. And then if we dressed kind of like boyish or hippie, she would tell us, like, go and clean up. Or So we, were, we I guess subtly we were often taught to look good and the attractiveness mattered. Sexually, I was Protestant. I went to Presbyterian church. But I don't know. I mean... My mother and my stepfather, when I was 13 or 14, gave my stepbrother and I this VHS tape called Who Am I Now? And I remember because we would play it and we would invite our friends over to play it because we thought it was like the most hilarious thing in the entire world. But that was basically our only sex talk growing up was this video. And I still remember the theme song. It was Who Am I Now? <laughs> <laughs> tell me who am I now and it was basically these like you know kids going through puberty and they were talking about what puberty meant and how feelings might come up and we used to play on loop because we just thought it was like the funniest thing ever so I guess that's a long way of saying we were never really taught we never the, the talk certainly never happened I certainly never told my mother when I lost my virginity and it was pretty much kept like don't talk about it sort of thing mm. which is weird considering how open my mom was about it herself in other ways how do you think that sort of lack of guidance affected you as you grew into your own sexuality it certainly didn't guide me <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> had left me feeling having to figure everything out on my own for sure. I mean, I I ended up in a lot of situations, whether or not I got myself into the situations or not. I ended up in a lot of situations that weren't helpful in a lot of ways. And I said yes to too many things and was constantly pushing the boundaries because I didn't have any. I didn't have them set for me. So hmm. I didn't I didn't know necessarily what they were. And I just kept testing them. And, you know, I often said that I was somebody who needed to experience, like nobody could tell me what to do. I needed to experience it in order to know my own boundaries. But now I kind of look back on that assessment of myself and wonder if it's, it is because I actually just never really had any boundaries clearly set for me. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Yeah. Mm. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Before we let Megan go, let's do the quick five. Five quick questions that we'd usually be too polite to ask even our best friend. Favorite sex position? Missionary. Favorite sex toy? Honestly, anal plug. (laughs) And do you use that during um, vaginal intercourse so that you have both going at the same time? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sex during your period? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's like the best time because it, you can feel so much and it's so much more open and lubricated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hair down there or bear? I love hair down there. However, it takes me some time to get the balls to grow it down there. When I'm when I'm first starting with the guy, I tend to be cautious and take everything off. So completely bare. Yeah. And then you over time grow it. Right. If I get more if it it really depends. I mean, for me, I think I heard you say this once actually, and it rang true for me. Cause I, I go back and forth with should I care what a guy thinks or should I not? But honestly, if the guy is going down there, I do care what he wants. And I think that if he prefers me, you know, clean, then I'll go clean. And if he's open for me to grow like back, then because I also I feel sexy when I have hair down there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For me, I um, I don't really care. It doesn't make any difference to me what's going on down there. So I will totally go with whatever my partner wants, except that I will not go uh, completely clean shaven because it, it, my skin is too sensitive to do that. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, what you're saying, whatever my partner wants, I'll totally do because I, I don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But there is something like I feel, I feel very sexy when I have full head of hair down there. And I think that's what's really important is when you're like fully in your body and and feeling yourself, then your partner's going to be, get the better end of that deal when you're fully into it. Unless he's down there and it's so hairy. (laughs) You can't even like find the clitoris. (laughs) You know, like there needs to be a little bit of a compromise. And I also, like if he's down there for a while, I, I want him to, be enjoying it too. Because yeah. like, then I won't enjoy it if he's not enjoying it. Sure. Do you prefer penetration or clit stimulation? I don't have a preference. I would prefer both. I The, the orgasm from clitoris is much different from inside. However, I can come either way. And the closeness I feel to my partner when he's inside me is unlike anything else. Megan, thank you so much for doing this. This has been so much fun talking to you. And I'm so grateful to you for just showing up and being so honest and and fully yourself. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad we got to do this now. I feel like I'm in a new space in my life where I'm able to talk about this kind of thing more openly without, you know, as much... um, shit attached to it <laughs> nice <laughs> well I, I my wish for you is that you go more and more fully into that space <laughs> thank you <laughs> that's it for today if you're enjoying the show please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts or if you're using another podcast app go to rate this forward slash good girls And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. 
I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.